Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. My name is Pradeep Kamat. And my name is Rahul Damania. We come to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's episode is dedicated to venous and arterial thrombi. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Anne Gill, Assistant Professor of Radiology and Imaging Sciences at Emory University School of Medicine. She's a pediatric interventional radiologist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Her areas of expertise include pediatric thromboembolic disease, vascular malformations, enteric feeding tube access, and interventional oncology. Annie is on Twitter at AnneGillMD. I will now turn it over to Rahul to present our patient case. A 17-year-old girl with antithrombin-3 deficiency presented with bilateral leg pain to an outside ED. Duplex ultrasound of the bilateral lower extremities revealed extensive acute bilateral deep vein thrombosis. CT of the abdomen and pelvis showed extensive clot in the inferior vena cava involving the infrarenal and suprarenal inferior vena cava. She was transferred to our hospital and admitted to the intensive care unit for thrombolysis and initiation of catheter-directed TPA infusion. In interventional radiology, an IVC filter was placed in the suprarenal IVC. Additionally, the venogram in interventional radiology showed complete thrombosis of the right upper femoral, external iliac, common iliac, and inferior vena cava with collateral veins in the right lower extremity draining into the thrombosed upper femoral vein. Interventional radiology performed pharmacomechanical thrombolysis and balloon angioplasty of the right external iliac, common iliac, and inferior vena cava, and placed an infusion catheter to drip TPA from the right femoral vein to the IVC filter. The patient was also placed on continuous heparin drip for systemic anticoagulation management. Morphine and dexmedetomidine was used for pain management. Dr. Gill, welcome to Pick You Doc on Call. Thank you so much. Dr. Gill, what is the incidence of venous occlusions in children and what are some of the causes? Thank you so much, Rahul and Pradeep, for having me on the Pick You Doc On Call podcast. I'm delighted to be here and discuss one of my favorite topics of pediatric thromboembolic disease. I have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. The overall prevalence of systemic venous occlusion in children, it's pretty difficult to ascertain because most children with these types of occlusions are asymptomatic. Menendez et al. reported that in 265 children who underwent a peripherally inserted central catheter placement, so a PICC line, for various indications, about 8% of them had an associated thrombosis, most of which were asymptomatic. And really, I would say in just my personal experience, when you start looking for venous thromboembolic disease, you will be surprised at how often you can find it. Venous occlusions in children can either be congenital or they can be acquired. Congenital systemic venous occlusions in children are secondary to developmental hypoplasia or agenesis of major conducting veins. What do we mean by that? Well, lower extremity deep vein anomalies like in Klippel-Trenani syndrome or IVC agenesis can then lead to downstream occlusions. Or this can also happen in utero or neonatal thrombosis of these deep venous pathways. A variety of syndromes can result in inferior vena cava atresia, 
or occlusion and the subsequent development of aberrant conducting pathways because the blood is simply trying to find a way back to the heart. Some of acquired causes include catheter-acquired obstruction, most commonly in the iliofemoral IVC area, or in the innominate veins of the chest draining into the superior vena cava, or SVC. Hypercoagulability and thrombophilia can cause acquired occlusions. The deep veins just become occluded by clot. Mechanical obstruction can cause occlusions. A nice example of this is in May-Turner syndrome, where the left common iliac vein is externally compressed by the overriding right common iliac artery. We've even seen patients that have had a recent renal transplant with a post-surgical fluid collection that compresses an iliac vein, and it then becomes occluded. And then, of course, trauma. Dr. Gill, this has a great basic science correlate of Verkhaus triad. We think of this involving stasis, endothelial injury, and hypercoagulability. Can you let us know why it is important to distinguish between congenital and acquired causes of thrombosis? Well, really, it can be hard to separate them out, but infants that present with venous occlusion, you really need to start questioning what's going on there and take a very careful history because it's necessary to determine, is this some type of an inherited thrombobilia? Did the patient have a central venous catheter? Is there some other process that's going on? And distinguishing between congenital and acquired SVO is sometimes a diagnostic challenge if they don't present until later in life. It's important to make this differential because that can really affect what procedures the child is able to have and how well you're going to be able to recanalize a vessel. For example, recanalization of a congenital systemic venous occlusion is often impossible. The collateral pathways that they've developed over time make it very difficult to try and reestablish a more central pathway back to the heart. It may include placing a stent or using a non-anatomic vascular channel. On the other hand, if this is an acquired cause and the native pathway is still there, which is always a much more straight, easier accessed pathway, even if it's very small, it will lead to a better outcome and the child will have less risk of post-thrombotic syndrome. Dr. Gill, what are some of the clinical presentation of systemic venous occlusions in children? Well, this is a much easier question to answer. Um, Definitely swelling due to impediment of flow. Head and neck swelling coupled with shortness of breath can represent SVC obstruction or superficial venous engorgement and a long-standing obstruction. One of my patients actually presented to the vascular anomalies clinic for a diagnosis of a venous malformation, and it was found that after the MRI, it showed that there was actually a deep venous compression from the May-Turner syndrome that was allowing these engorged superficial veins to present much like a venous malformation would. In clinical scenarios with an acute DVT, venous congestion can occur, and that's noticed as swelling, a prolonged capillary refill, coolness of the extremity, bluish discoloration to even frank venous ischemia. And in that instance, you can have loss of pulses, drastic changes in skin coloration called phlegmasia, cerulea dolens, and paresthesias. Paresthesias are one of the most important findings on your clinical exam and really critical for you to tell your interventional proceduralists that these changes have happened. Chronic DVT in the extremities can present with a sense of heaviness, aching, pain, increased fatigue with activity, 
and these symptoms are collectively described as post-thrombotic syndrome. The severity of post-thrombotic syndrome is calculated with the modified Vilalta scoring system. I think this is an important point for our listeners, that obstruction to flow has important physical exam findings. And it goes back to histology in which arteries are going to have a thick tunica media, whereas veins are going to be easily compressible. Remember that a loss of distal flow is going to also compromise your oxygen delivery. Dr. Gill, what are some of the common venous occlusions you see in your interventional practice that serve as indications for catheter-directed thrombolysis? I would say that common vessel systems involved for us that we would choose to intervene on are usually in the femoral, popliteal, and iliac veins. And then in the chest, it would involve the innominate veins and the superior vena cava. Of course, if there is clot within the IVC, that would also fit within the parameters for pursuing catheter-directed thrombolysis. Patients with unrecognized IVC interruption and azagous continuation will be at a high risk for developing severe thrombosis when there is lower extremity venous catheterization. But what does that mean in practical terms? If your patient does not have a properly formed IVC and is reliant upon collateral pathways such as the azagous system to deliver blood back to the heart, and you place a PICC line in one of their lower extremities, they're at a significantly increased risk of forming a DVT because the blood flow is impaired and there's increased stasis within the system. Other common causes could be a malpositioned or wrongly sized central venous catheter with subsequent delivery of caustic medication such as TPN and it can contribute to vessel stenosis and overall occlusion rates. May-Turner syndrome, most commonly seen in adolescent females, results in the DVT of the left lower extremity due to external compression of the left common iliac vein from the overriding right common iliac artery. And then dialysis patients with long-standing central venous access for hemodialysis are at a very high risk of SVC stenosis and inclusion. One of the trials that I'd like to mention today for our listeners is the ATTRACT trial, which was done in 2017. And that trial showed that the catheter-directed thrombolysis procedure was most beneficial in deep venous thrombosis that involved veins above the inguinal ligament, such as the external iliac, the common iliac, and the IVC. And in our practice, we often do not recommend catheter-directed thrombolysis for acute DVTs located below the inguinal ligament, meaning the popliteal vein, or ephemeral vein. Those types of clots can easily be cleared with anticoagulation unless there's some other type of an extenuating circumstance. The same principle can be applied to the upper extremities and the chest. And in my personal opinion, catheter-directed thrombolysis is usually only offered in my practice for clot extending from the axillary vein into the subclavian or anominate veins of the chest, as well as the SVC. Thank you for highlighting these very important anatomic considerations. And when catheter-directed thrombolysis is going to be contraindicated based on these anatomic correlates, it is important for us to really optimize medical management. Dr. Gill, what are some of the other contraindications that you think of in children with thrombosis? That's a really good question, Rahul. What you're mostly getting at is when is it not appropriate to give a child TPA? And so these indications would include an allergy to TPA, and I guess I should say TPA means tissue plasminogen activator. If the child has had any active bleeding or surgery in the last 14 days, any invasive procedure in the last three days, recent seizures, 
recent trauma, or a coagulopathy that can't be easily corrected. We also need to be cautious with premature infants and those with hypertension or any other risk factors for bleeding. And one of my most important points that I want to communicate to our listeners is that you must work in conjunction with your hematologists and make sure that they are also help guiding the therapy and the administration of TPA. And really, this falls into what we're going to touch on a little bit later, is that collaboration between the PICU, IR, and hematology is really necessary for the success in these types of critically ill patients. Dr. Gill, what are some of the diagnostic or lab studies you need prior to consulting on a patient with venous occlusion? I would say we could start with a Doppler ultrasound. Although evaluation of the superior vena cava and the IVC can be limited by ultrasound, and that's mostly because the lungs and the ribs of the chest limit the ultrasound beam penetration to the SVC. Also, the bowel gas can limit the ultrasound penetration to evaluate the IVC. An advantage of ultrasound is that it can be done in patients without sedation. It can be done at the bedside, and it's not invasive. The ultrasound can give us information about thrombotic occlusion of major vessels, the absence of major conducting pathways, the presence of large collateral channels over the abdominal or chest wall, and it can also help us decipher venous reflux. Ultrasound can be used in the PICU after the procedure to reevaluate if there is a concern for rethrombosis. Central vessels like the SVC and the IVC are really better visualized with either CT or MRI. Either CT or MRI require contrast in order to detect the thrombus or the vascular occlusion. In cases where stent placement is indicated, cross-sectional imaging, like CT and MRI, offer the ability to estimate the vessel length and the diameter, so it gives your proceduralist an idea of exactly the dimensions of the clot. I would say that contrast-enhanced MRI and dynamic MR venography is useful for lower extremity and abdominal and pelvic evaluation. MRV is often the exam of choice for non-invasive evaluation of pediatric venous disease because it doesn't give our patients any radiation, and it also gives your proceduralists a lot of confidence as to whether they're going to encounter clot in the IVC, which will also help guide the risk factor for the patient if there's been a PE. Contrast-enhanced CT in children has the ability to accurately assess the small caliber of vessels and the proliferation of venous collaterals. And while I don't like that kids are exposed to radiation with that exam, sometimes it is the best option, such as patients with a pulmonary embolus or PE. The contrast timing is maximized to best visualize pulmonary arteries as well as the four chambers of the heart with a contrast-enhanced CT. And then I'd lastly say... In the last few years, there's been a huge advance in the imaging resolution and ability for us to use something called cone beam CT. Cone beam CT is a CT that is able to be acquired from the interventional radiology fluoroscopy suite. It's used in a procedure to assess for how well your stent is opposed to the vessel walls. It's used to evaluate for the presence of procedural complications. Was a vessel perforated? Is there active bleeding within the abdomen? Something like that. And in patients who have had a stent placement, if you want to further evaluate them after the procedure, MR evaluation could be limited due to the presence of metal artifact. MRI in children has the drawback also, often requiring sedation or general anesthesia for a prolonged image acquisition time. 
Finally, I would say that we typically get a hematology consult for more specialized lab evaluation for thrombosis, etc. But in general, a CBC, we would require platelets greater than 50,000, a DIC panel to show us the PTPTT, D-dimer, and fibrinogen levels, a CMP to evaluate the patient's creatinine, and a type and screen are required before we would proceed with catheter-directed thrombolysis. Thank you for highlighting that diagnostic framework. Dr. Gill, what are some of the general principles of venous recannulization for patients who have acute venous occlusion? Acute venous occlusions, such as acute DVTs that have had a duration of symptoms less than 14 days, are typically related to acute thromboembolism. Acute thrombus burden can be crossed pretty easily with a wire because it hasn't had time to solidify or calcify, and it's very soft for the wire to penetrate through. Once wire access is achieved, the method for thrombectomy is selected, and it may include pharmacomechanical thrombectomy, balloon maceration, suction thrombectomy, or any combination of the above-mentioned techniques. One of the other tools that I really want to make sure we talk about is intravascular ultrasound. It's one of the most valuable tools in venous thromboembolic disease, in my opinion. Intravascular ultrasound enables the operator to determine if there is external compression of the vein, seen in thoracic outlet syndrome or May-Turner syndrome. If the initial thrombolysis or thrombectomy has been successful in clearing the thrombus, you will see a patent channel that is there on the IVUS machine. It will also provide accurate measurement of the vessel diameter, which can be difficult with veins because they're not perfectly round. They can be squashed or flattened, but still patent. Balloon angioplasty may be necessary to establish a patent channel through the thrombosed vessel, or it can also help one stretch an area of stenosis. However, stent placement or surgical decompression must be considered in appropriate clinical scenarios, such as older adolescent patients who have difficulty of clearing the clot without relieving the chronic venous compression. Eventually, most patients with acute DVTs will require catheter-directed thrombolysis. CDT means that you leave a catheter dripping TPA overnight. So after they've been in the procedure, you've established a patent channel, you then need to make sure it stays patent and doesn't re-thrombose. And so this is where we ship our patients off to you guys in the PICU. We leave our catheter dripping and we bring them back the next day for a lysis check. This always requires a PICU admission and they need help managing the TPA drip, which we watch on fibrinogen levels every six to eight hours. We need help with systemic anticoagulation. And then we also need regular neurovascular checks for any significant mental status changes or worsening vascular compromise in the affected region. For acute or short-segment venous stenosis or occlusion, you may be able to treat it by just balloon angioplasty, followed by systemic anticoagulation. However, this would require frequent follow-up imaging appointments and regular clinical appointments in the hematology thrombosis clinic. You want to make sure that this damaged area of endothelium doesn't re-thrombose. Imaging follow-up in these types of scenarios could include ultrasound if in the extremities, a contrast-enhanced CT if it's dealing with a very small vessel, or an MRV, depending on the location of the vessel. For more chronic or long-segment occlusions, stent placement may be the best answer in the older adolescent population. Dr. Gill, what are some of the general principles of venous recanalization for chronic venous occlusion? 
really you're going to be reliant upon stents. And so by, I guess I should first say what we mean by chronic venous occlusion. These are patients that have had symptoms for more than 14 days or maybe even imaging evidence of chronic thrombus changes such as intraluminal calcifications or very prominent venous collaterals over the body or extremity wall. And you might initially try angioplasty, but really often you require some type of foundational improvement in that vessel, and that would require stenting, or maybe even a surgical bypass graft or a prosthetic graft reconstruction of the vessel. Most people would admit that the standard of therapy relies at least initially upon endovascular treatment, and it's becoming more widely accepted in pediatrics as it has been completely accepted for first-line therapy in adults. Endovascular techniques limit the amount of blood loss. It allows for multiple access sites to be established during a single procedure, and they have very good long-term patency rates. Thank you for highlighting acute and chronic venous occlusion. Dr. Gill, when a patient comes back after catheter-directed thrombolysis, what are some of the key aspects that we need to watch out for? That's a great question because the PICU team is essentially our eyes and ears while the patient is recovering from their procedure. Most of them come back extubated. So they may have been intubated for the procedure, but hopefully they're stable enough that they would come back with the endotracheal tube out. Patients will absolutely require very close neurological monitoring because we're always concerned about the risk of an intracerebral bleed while they are dripping TPA. We also need to have very good communication about the amount of pain the patient is in because as if the pain significantly increases, it could mean that we're having more of a vascular compromise or rethrombosis. There also needs to be careful monitoring of the heparin infusion and the TPA management, which requires frequent lab draws. Careful attention on the lab draws needs to focus on the follow-up fibrinogen levels, the D-dimer, and the platelet levels. Providers should also carefully monitor the body part that's undergoing thrombolysis, so the leg, the arm, or the neck, as it would relate to a deep occlusion within the SVC. And you need to also verify that the extremity strength and the sensation is unchanged. If there is a loss of strength, or worsening paresthesias, or more demand for the pain medications, or worsening discoloration or pallor, you need to call the interventionalist right away to assess the patient, and possibly a surgical intervention may be needed to release the pressure within the extremity. I think that this is a great point, and it is to highlight the importance of contingency planning and attention to fine detail. As we notice these subtle trends, communication across all of the services who are managing this patient is key. And also understanding that these patients may have bleeding or thromboembolic phenomena post-procedure, one of which is APE, which may manifest as persistent hypoxemia or even respiratory failure. And in such cases, having the ECMO primers notified and having an ECMO circuit on standby is imperative. Dr. Gill, how is heparin and TPA dosed in these patients once they're in the ICU? Well, here at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, we have worked with our hematologists to establish a protocol. In our practice, we use a low-dose systemic heparin infusion, 10 to 15 units per kilogram per hour, to achieve a heparin assay goal of 0.3 to 0.7. 
Some institutions will also follow a PTT level. The TPA, which is an antifibrinolytic agent, is given as an intraprocedural bolus of 0.6 milligrams per kilogram with a max dose given of 10 milligrams. That's right at the initiation of the pharmacomechanical thrombolysis. And then further on down after the procedure, we do an infusion through the lysis catheter, and it's typically dosed at 0.03 to 0.06 milligrams per kilogram per hour. And usually that equals out to about a milligram an hour that we drip through a catheter. If you're in the special situation where you may have more than one catheter dripping, you may need to split that dose into 0.5 milligrams per hour between two catheters. Rarely do you have more than two catheters dripping TPA at a time. We typically monitor TPA by serial fibrinogen levels, and the initial goal is for fibrinogen to drop by 50% and the D-dimer to rise. If there is little change in the fibrinogen over 24 hours, then per our protocol, you would consider giving 10 cc's per kilogram of fresh frozen plasma to replace the plasminogen within the system so the clot is able to continue to lyse. Dr. Gill, what precautions should the PICU doctor take for patients getting TPA and heparin in the PICU after the IR procedure? In the PICU, patients should not get arterial sticks or intramuscular injections. Should be very careful and really consider whether a rectal temperature or other placement of catheters should be done. Other catheters could be like a nasogastric tube or a urinary Foley catheter. And the other point I would recommend is that you would avoid NSAIDs or any other antiplatelet drugs. The risk of bleeding is just too high. We check the DIC fibrinogen every 12 hours and the CBC every 6 hours. Sometimes those time frames can be adjusted if you need to more closely monitor the levels. Creatinine is also monitored every 24 hours. Patients should be transfused for platelets less than 50,000 and given cryoprecipitate for fibrinogen less than 100. And then I would say in my experience, you can anticipate a 1 to 2 gram drop per deciliter in hemoglobin. Hematuria and hemoglobinuria is not uncommon because as the pharmacomechanical thrombolysis takes place in IR, those red blood cells of the clot are destroyed and then end up having the heme filtered by the kidney. It's important for the patients to maintain hydration, and this is why you will see a bump in the creatinine and could be a good consideration to place a Foley catheter before the TPA is given. The ICU doctor should also have a collaborative approach with IR, anesthesia, and hematology. The patients are often transferred back and forth from the PICU to IR to check the progress made during thrombolysis and whether we need to consider continuing the TPA or heparin infusions. I think this is an important point to highlight for our listeners, that once catheter-directed thrombolysis is initiated, the post-procedure management is going to really rely on us monitoring the systemic effects of breaking down this clot. The key to understanding the physiology is that fibrinogen is converted to fibrin, and this fibrin-stabilized clot is going to be broken up by the catheter-directed thrombolysis, and the lab manifestation of this is an elevated D-dimer. That's correct. Dr. Gill, how is patient transitioned to anoxaparine? Once the IR physician is happy with the amount of clot removal and reestablished blood flow, I would say the decision is made to stop TPA. At that point, the patient will remain on unfractionated heparin 
which is increased until they reach the therapeutic levels of 0.3 to 0.7. Hematology in our system helps coordinate the discontinuation of the unfractionated heparin and then initiation of either a DOAC or an oxaparin. Dr. Gill, thank you so much for highlighting the key considerations with catheter-directed thrombolysis. Let's just take a global approach and talk a little bit about the field of pediatric interventional radiology. For the pediatric intensivist, what are services that you all offer and how can we continue to collaborate into the future? Well, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. So we love working with you guys and we're always happy to help you drain things. What kinds of things can we drain? Well, we can drain pleural effusions, ascites fluid. We can help you drain a very infected gallbladder with a cholecystectomy drain. We can place pick lines. We can help you with temporary or permanent vascular dialysis catheters. We can help with placement of feeding tubes such as G-tubes or converting G-tubes to GJ tubes. And we also do difficult lumbar punctures, especially in obese patients. One of the other considerations that we work in is interventional oncology. And this discipline provides us ability to do percutaneous image-guided biopsies of solid tumors, livers, kidneys. And then one of the newer areas is working with thermal ablation of solid tumors or painful bony metastases. And thermal ablation can include cryoablation or microwave ablation of these lesions. We work very closely with our pediatric surgeons to offer a less invasive approach to many pediatric conditions. Dr. Gill, what clinical pulse do you have for the PICU team regarding patients undergoing uh, CDT? I think my most important point to stress is the collaborative teamwork between anesthesiology, hematology, the intensivist team, and IR. It's really when all of these teams come together and work for the betterment of the patient that we have our optimal outcomes. I would also say don't hesitate to call interventional radiology early and often. Asking a question or verifying an order is not a sign of weakness. We would rather be asked a thousand times if a patient is appropriate for catheter-directed thrombolysis rather than miss one that could have benefited from the procedure. Follow labs closely, especially your fibrinogen levels, the platelets, the hemoglobin hematocrit levels, and just expect a bump in the patient's creatinine, so make sure you're adequately hydrating the patient. To summarize this episode, we learned about the management of the patient undergoing catheter-directed thrombolysis. We started with hypercoagulability mechanisms and transitioned to the process of CDT and really want to emphasize that a collaborative approach with IR anesthesia, hematology, and intensivist is necessary for an optimal outcome. This concludes our episode today on CDT. We are grateful to Dr. Annie Gill for her expertise on this topic. We hope you found value in this short podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on one of our podcasts. PQ Doc on Call is co-hosted by me, Pradeep Kamat, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.